Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Yes, so let's start with rubbing our hands together because it's been a little chilly on and off the last week. And I uh, did a story, I want to reprise, just to remind you if you were listening, about how atrial fibrillation is more common in cold weather. There's lots of things that are more common in cold weather, some bad, some good. This story is about something good. Cold is beneficial for healthy aging. And some recent research in animals and cell cu- human cell culture seems to point to the mechanism Now, a lower body temperature is one of the most effective mechanisms to prolong the lifespan of animals. We've known this for a while. New research is looking at precisely how this works. Scientists showed in a series of studies that cold can prevent the pathological aggregation of proteins typical for two aging-associated diseases, neurodegenerative diseases, ALS and Huntington's. Cold actually activates a cellular cleansing mechanism that breaks down harmful protein aggregations that are associated with various diseases and, in across the board, associated with aging. A research group at the University of Cologne's C, uh, CCAD's Cluster of Excellence in Aging Research has unlocked one responsible mechanism, and uh, it's pretty cool. Researchers David Vilches and his work group used a non-vertebrate model, the nematode, a favorite of scientists everywhere, right up there on the hip parade with the fruit fly and the lab mouse. They also used cultivated human cells. Both sets of cells carried the genes for two neurodegenerative diseases that typically occur in older age. ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also sometimes known as Lou Gehrig's disease, and Huntington's disease. Huntington's disease is a autosomal dominant. That means that a, a person will have a 50% chance of giving it to their kids. Uh, Woody Guthrie had Huntington's disease. I believe that Arlo did not. I should have checked that with the person ahead of me before they left because they probably knew. Uh, But these pathological protein aggregations are interesting because we see them in a lot of aging diseases on unhealthy agers, not those people who live to be 100 routinely, but the rest of us. And if we could only just stop that pathological uh, aggregation, we might get somewhere. So in both model organisms that we're talking about, cold actively removed the protein clumps, uh, not just preventing them from forming, but actively removed them. The research revealed that there was a key factor, the proteasome activator, PA28 gamma PSM E3. We're going to call that proteasome activator for the rest of the uh, talk. A proteasome is basically an organ inside a cell that acts like a little grinder and chews up garbage. It was possible to activate this proteasome through a moderate decrease in temperature. So they, the key find here is that you can lower the temperature and 
reverse the protein aggregation, presumably treating Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Huntington's, and ALS, if we can figure out how exactly to weaponize this proteasome. But you can also overexpress the activator. Remember, we talked about that proteasome activator with all of the initials after its name. Well, you can simply increase the genetic expression of the activator, and that will rev up the protein. And that way you don't actually have to drop the body temperature below 37 degrees Celsius for the human cells. So we we know that worms, fish, flies live longer. They're cold-blooded. It, they, they're, they, it, unless it gets too cold and their blood freezes, they pretty much live longer the colder it is. Mammals, on the other hand, have to use energy to maintain their body temperature. And if we can just drop that temperature slightly, as little as half a degree of Celsius, about a degree Fahrenheit in a mouse, you can significantly increase the lifespan. Humans actually drop their body temperature during deep sleep and reach a cool 36 degrees during sleep. I, I have a feeling that's why I'm such a slow boot in uh, the morning. I consider it very difficult to wake up no matter how much sleep I've had. I definitely it takes a while to get all the systems online. And uh, th- those who have lived with me will attest that Cooling me down actually seems to work quite well, as in tearing the covers off my body. But uh, I don't recommend that you try that uh, on someone that, well, that doesn't love you, because you may uh, be surprised at their response. The reason this is, I think, uh, relevant for us is lately there's been a real sort of boutique resurgence of cold, right? This is for weight loss and to maybe improve longevity, but people will step into a very, very cold temperature uh, area for a few minutes, you know, a very short period of time, but they'll drop their surface temperature by 30 or 40, maybe even 50 degrees. And it's so short a time that they don't damage their cells. What we do know about that kind of treatment is that it increases brown fat. So it's Brown fat is the fat that actually burns energy rather than just storing energy. And brown fat is responsible for maintaining your body temperature to keep you from getting too cold. If you activate brown fat by this chilling, that activation lasts for a while. And I'd love to see research uh, on these protein aggregates and whether or not that's related to the proteasomes. Could be the same or a related mechanism, possibly through the activation factors that we talked about in this program. Well, this is the 10th anniversary of CRISPR. CRISPR uh, is a, a game changer for medicine. It allows us to cut and paste DNA, and it is, it's just an amazing technology. So far, 10 years later, we have proof of concept in the form of techniques to eliminate malaria mosquitoes, and that's been done in several areas of South America in limited areas successfully. And what we have to do is figure out how not to collapse the food chain for the uh, things that eat the mosquitoes, and uh, like dragonflies, one of my favorite uh, insects, and 
So once, but the idea that we could stop propagation of malaria by wiping out the mosquito population in an area uh, to allow things to kind of cool down, so to speak, it it has potential even like this. You could create circles because mosquitoes don't really travel very far. So you could create dead zones uh, surrounding communities where the there wasn't where there weren't any malaria vectors and so you could effectively get rid of all the standing water in a village create a zone where malaria vectors could not fly in uh, and it would not be transmitted it it could work but what i want to talk about tonight is even more exciting than lowering the rates of malaria it's actually curing a disease and the disease that we're going to talk about is sickle cell disease. Sickle cell disease is a horrible disease. It's caused by a single point mutation, one amino acid replacement in the in the molecule hemoglobin destabilizes it. In situations of acid of high acid or low blood flow, your normal beautiful curly hemoglobin model will basically collapse into a sort of double scimitar shape, and those scimitar edges are sharp. Not only does this impair the blood flow through uh, the small blood vessels, leading to infarctions, ischemia, uh, it causes uh, anemia because those, those scimitar shapes that the hemoglobin collapses into actually cut through the cell wall. And so the life of a sickle cell uh, a sickle cell, red blood cell, is much shorter. And so people suffer from anemia. They need frequent transfusions. They get iron overload. Their joints get damaged. Uh, it, they often lose their spleen from repeated infarctions. It's a serious, serious disease. And it condemns people to a life of suffering. What's even more frustrating in our country, where we definitely have a lack of universal access to good health care, is that over 50% of the people with sickle cell disease in the United States are African American and over and more than 80% of this population which is to say African Americans with sickle cell disease lack access to any kind of advanced healthcare and I'm going to say tragically it will be very hard to get that therapy to the people who need it most. So here's the new. Here's the name of uh, the new uh, product. It's called CasGV, and the way it works is fascinating. It isn't repla- It it isn't replacing the damaged hemoglobin molecule. Not at all. What it's doing is turning on fetal hemoglobin. You see, when we are in utero, the oxygen in the blood that we're receiving from mom, the oxi- the amount of oxygen per unit of blood is much lower. We call it the oxygen tension. It's basically close to venous blood, and yet the baby survives and grows, you know, very quickly on it. How does that happen? Because it has a different shape of the hemoglobin, the four-leaf clover twisty shape of hemoglobin is just a little different, so it releases its oxygen earlier. It picks it up 
at a lower oxygen tension and it releases it at a lower oxygen tension. So that means that you nourish the cells. It's not ideal, but the existence of fetal hemoglobin in a person with sickle cell will allow their cells not to sickle. And so it stabilizes the structure. It's enormously beneficial. And rather than trying to get in there and do an edit that is very precise and just fixes the hemoglobin molecule that's wrong in these individuals, you simply say, we're just going to turn the light on on something that everybody has as an embryo and now turn it back on so that it can replace the functionality of the damaged hemoglobin and act as a kind of brace or buttress against the sickling crisis. And it has been transformational. Uh, The first patient to receive this treatment, a very brave woman named Victoria Gray, uh, said at a recent meeting before the United States Senate that, I'm sorry, Federal Advisory Committee, I don't know if it was, uh, I don't know who was on it, probably some senators and some reps. Anyway, she said she's finally been free from the painful crises that used to occur uh, more than more than once a month for her. It completely sidelined her, and now she can live a normal life. A lot of people with sickle cell get worse in cold weather. You'll remember that I said that environmental factors affect it. We seem to be on a little bit of an environmental role here uh, in terms of the wandering theme. I like to get a wandering theme going. So if you have any cold weather questions, please feel free to uh, reach out to me. Uh, The gene editing is great because it uses the person's, it edits the person's own cells. There's another alternative treatment. Uh, This uses the, um, this uses the uh, virus to create a new form of hemoglobin, but the problem is it's a viral vector and again, off-site repair, if you get, you have to get that repair, that patch into exactly the right place because of the way DNA works. If you are one base off, and that's, that's like hundreds of a millimeter, if you miss by that much, you may completely turn on cancer. You may kill the individual outright. You may turn on cancer. You may cause an enormous harm in your attempt to do good. So both these therapies are a big deal. You're in the hospital for months. The bone marrow cells have to be collected. The They have to be edited. They have to be put back in the people. You have to essentially clear, set them up as if you were doing a bone marrow transplant. Then you infuse the edited cells. It's not easy. And uh, the cost is crazy, Okay. The, the company that produced Vertex has set the, the price for doing it at $2.2 million, and that's a lot of money. An analysis by the Clinical and Economic Review, a nonprofit group that evaluates the use of drugs, said actually, assuming that a person with sickle cell would live to be 45 years old, which is the life expectancy of someone with sickle cell, uh, two million for per treatment would actually be cost effective, given the amount of cost that we spend transfusing, hospitalizing, 
sedating and all of the other things that are done to this individual when they could be home enjoying a, no- a normal life with their family. Yeah, th- it really depends on how you do the economics in medicine, but cost-effective from a social justice standpoint, cost-effective from a spiritual standpoint, well, I don't think there's much question about that. We're going to do a little email answering now. I love when I get uh, pen pals. When I was a little girl, I had a pen pal in France, and that was very exciting. Uh Well, I have pen pals all over the world for this program, and this one comes from Warsaw, Poland. Uh, Neil Milne writes, uh, Hi, Dr. Don. I'm a regular long-distance listener of your podcast, and I really appreciate your helpful and insightful advice. A good friend of mine has recently been diagnosed with stage 3 cancer of the colon. He's London-based and fortunately being treated at the Royal Marsden Hospital, probably one of the best oncology centers in the U.K., He's about to embark on an intensive course of chemo and radiation with hope it will shrink the tumor and allow its surgical removal, probably then followed by further radiation treatment. I'm sure he's getting the best medical treatment, but do you have any suggestions regarding diet or supplements that might help mitigate the often unpleasant side effects of the therapies he's about to endure? And thank you so much, Neil, for your thoughtful question. Uh, supporting wellness and helping reduce the side effects of treatment is where I think that natural medicine uh, or functional medicine belongs. And we can think of it as, you know, the primary goal, of course, is to support the the tumor-fighting effects of the treatment and reduce their side effects. But we also want to support immunity, enhance the beneficial cell signaling, which occurs, reduce the tumor-promoting factors, like growth factors that can be floating around. A good example for this is I generally tell people, stop the milk if you've got cancer because milk contains growth factors. And I'm talking about the cleanest, purest, rawest, or pasteurized, free-range, grass-fed, no antibiotics. It's got growth factors in it. It's food for baby cows. And you would like to avoid growth factors in a situation where you have cells that have reverted to their prenatal state, so to speak, where they are uh, possibly responding to the same growth factors that cow's milk might give them, or goat's milk, or sheep's milk. Now, once a cancer has spread, and in a stage three situation, it's already spread, that means it's gotten either into the circular system or the lymphatic system. And surgical removal alone just doesn't cut it. it. It's in multiple parts of the body. So now what you have to do is go after it in multiple, multiple ways. And so limiting multi-drug resistance, making the cancer as vulnerable as possible to the, to the early treatments is uh, extremely important. And also promoting apoptosis. There are some genes, P21, P53, and KROS. And these are all genes that ordinarily, in a non-cancer situation, recognize when things start to go a little sideways in the cell. And they act and they activate and cause that cell, basically they shut down the mitochondria. And the the cells die because without mitochondria, there's no energy, and off you go. Let's start with 
some specific advice for your friend. He has not yet had surgery. So he needs to start on fractionated citrus pectin. And this really needs to begin uh, before the biopsy, but we never, we don't take it every day. So he's had his biopsy. But now that we know what we're dealing with, you want to try and work this powdered modified citrus pectin in. The reason that we use this is because it acts like a magnet. Uh, think of it as one of those things. I have some little spiky plastic things that I can put in my laundry, in my dryer, when I'm trying to suck up all the cat hair so it gets the cat hair off my black polar fleece. It sort of works. And so you're sending this citrus pectin into the bloodstream where microscopic fragments of it actually attach to the tumor cells and prevent them from being able to leave the circulation. So they get sucked into the spleen, they get filtered out in the lymph nodes and eliminated. It's that elimination piece that's so important. So uh, that's going to be one of the first things that you want to do. The second thing is during the radiation. Radiation in that area is going to cause a lot of damage to the mucosa. And of course, one of the best things you can do there is give lots of L-glutamine. L-glutamine is a factor for the mucosa. And it's going to be, glutamine is going to be the thing that really makes a difference uh, for preserving the healthy tissue as, as, as narrow a rim of damage as possible, essentially, and allowing recovery of the healthy tissue as quickly as possible. And this is an amino acid, about 5,000 to, well, 5,000 milligrams twice a day. Both of these things can be put in a smoothie and it's just, or into yogurt and they're, they are tasteless. They don't add, you just have to consume them and they will both make a big difference. And I know that these are things that are going to be available, if not uh, in the, in the chemist's uh, shop, at least online. Mushrooms, uh, if you're treating cancer and that's relevant to my question, to my answer to Neil. So let's pick up his thing. Um, Mushrooms, if you're treating for cancer, you definitely want the fruiting body, sometimes called the aerial body, and not the mycelia. Uh, you'll get a much more bang with your, for your buck. And mushrooms do contain compounds called beta-glycans that stimulate the T cells, which are the primary cells, that, especially the natural killer cells, which are the primary cells going after the cancer. So it's very important to to do that. So, so far we've covered the L-glutamine, so important to support the gut. And I'm just reviewing Neil's question. I think his friend was going to eventually get surgery. So at the point that he, that the friend gets his surgery, he's going to need to heal. And the healing is very helped by things like vitamin C, zinc, and making sure you are eating a high-protein diet. And I definitely recommend a plant-protein diet leading up to the surgery, but make sure you get adequate protein. So that would mean you know, soy and nuts, beans, uh, legumes, 
whatever isn't is tolerated for the individual. But protein being loaded up on protein before the surgery is a very important uh, piece to lead to recovery. After recovery, taking uh, you want to be careful to think about not losing too much weight. You're going to have lost quite a bit of late weight. Uh, I, I had mentioned the glutamine. That's very helpful for the diarrhea and the bleeding that's going to happen. Uh, depending on which chemotherapy he'll be getting, there are a lot of natural products that can be taken, and I think that's too complex for a radio show. So, Neil, I'm going to send you my, oh, it's like 15 pages of notes on botanical support during cancer care. I bet you don't know what the world's largest invasive organism is. Uh, We think of invasive organisms as things like river carp and rabbits in Australia or something like that. But actually, Colombia is experiencing a plague of invasive hippos. Uh, it all starts back in uh, 1980 when a, a drug cartel leader named Pablo Escobar in Colombia illegally imported four hippos. He, uh, he died in 1993. The hippos were sort of left to fend for themselves, and fend they did. The male and three females reproduced rapidly thanks to, among other things, they're in Central America, there are, or South America, rather. There are no droughts. There are no predators. Uh, normally, these things keep the hippo populations in check. You know, lions uh, in their native sub-Saharan Africa, they have predators, but not, not in Colombia. Right now, there's about 215 hippos wandering around, uh, around Colombia, and these guys are very territorial. So they will charge you, and in fact, the the num- they are the num even though they're herbivores, they are the number one cause of human death in Africa, uh, when from wild animals, uh, because they'll just you know all they have to do is charge right over you, and just like you were run over by a, a Humvee. So uh, some models of their population growth estimate that by 2050 there could be like a thousand uh, in. Colombia. So the country has begun a new campaign to sterilize its invasive hippos. Uh, so taking it seriously, the plan is to capture, anesthetize, and sterilize the, an initial 20 hippos by the end of 2023. They didn't make it. Uh, this story was from uh, November, and uh, here we are in January of the next year. They did not make it, but they have a three-prong approach. They were also going to Ship the hippos abroad, you know, export your problems. We know a little bit about that. And uh, maybe sell them to zoos. And, of course, culling. So this was announced in November, and it created a massive backlash. Uh, Somebody posted a very sad video uh, online of a dead hippo and so much for the political possibilities of culling the animals. these guys weigh three tons, and they compete with a lot of the native species. Uh, they're also drastically shifting the microbiome of the Columbia's main river with their 
excrement uh, because they poop in the water. And that's going to change the fisheries and probably damage the food supply in a chain reaction that could really, really go crazy. So they put aside $200,000 for the sterilization campaign. Here's what's involved. You take, you need eight people, including veterinarians, technicians, and support path. It takes six to eight hours to sterilize a hippo. And so far they've managed three. And this was as of late November. They're trying to get up to 40 a year. But then, if you, you know, what are you going to do with them after you've sterilized them? You can't turn them loose because that doesn't solve the problem. So you either have to sell them or keep them penned up. India has made an offer to buy 60 of the animals, and we're not asking too many questions about whether they're going into a zoo. Uh, it, Mexico said that they would uh, import another 10, so that's helping to uh, get rid of it a lot, but culling is going to be necessary here. You're going to have to take a big, deep breath and kill off some of the hippos because there just isn't anywhere else to put them. Unless we can sterilize them by some other manner, but that, I can't think of, you know, Depo Provera shots, you know, through a, uh, through one of those anesthesia guns and in different color paint every month. So you make sure you get all the hippos. I don't know. That's pretty crazy. You know, a lot of what we think we know is wrong. And some of it we're doing for the convenience of the wrong people. So two new studies just came out showing that we have been doing premature delivery wrong. They think, based on their data, that you could reduce premature deaths of infants, particularly the very premature, at the time of C-section, because they're usually delivered by by C-section, if the doctors delayed clamping the umbilical cord for at least two minutes. So this was uh, pretty big numbers that looked at 6,000 babies. And the longer you avoid clamping the cord, the more blood flows from the placenta uh, into the baby. That blood carries oxygen. Meanwhile, the baby's lungs are trying to expand so it can breathe. Now, the more premature you are, the harder it is for that expansion. There's a lubricant called surfactant, which isn't formed until the last three or four weeks before birth at the full levels that you have it as an adult. I'm sure you all remember having the wind knocked out of you, uh, particularly as a child. I have a couple of experiences where I just felt for 30 or 40 seconds like I could not breathe. It felt like my lungs were stuck together and I couldn't even expand my chest. It was very scary. Uh, That was with the surfactant that expansion of the lungs after they've been drastically compressed through the birth canal requires lubrication and these preemies don't have enough of it. So they have to really suck, suck, suck their lungs open. Uh, And unfortunately, we are cutting the lifeline when we cut the cord. The longer we wait, the better the mortality for premature infants. It is possible to leave the cord connected too long. One mistake that can be made is dro- is dropping the baby below the level. In other words, if you dro- if you hold the baby below the level of the uterus, 
you've given that blood a downhill and a whole bunch of blood will flow out of the placenta and you can actually put too many red blood cells into the infant. But cutting the cord too soon, in particularly in immediate in a C-section, well, that's for the convenience of the doctors. Because you see, what we do when we have a small premature baby is we want to get oxygen on them right away. We want to get them into the incubator right away. So we, we end up cutting the cord probably sooner than we do with a normal delivery, and that's exactly wrong. If we simply brought the resuscitation team over to the mother, uh, that, that cord's long enough that you could get the baby on a table and just do the resuscitation, do the things you're going to do with the, ox- with the oxygenation and uh, all of the various ma- manipulations, those could be done at the bedside in the surgical suite. But usually you grab the baby and go off into the corner and do that. There's no reason we have to do it that way. And we now have data showing that maybe that's exactly the wrong way to do it. So let's spend a little time talking about space. We're messing around with gene editing. We've talked a little bit about CRISPR. We've talked a little bit about cold and body adaptations. Let's spend a little time wandering around the concept of, oh my God, I'm floating in space. So what happens if we put a million people on Mars by 2050? As uh, SpaceX uh, says, what about those floating space colonies at the Lagrange points that Jeff Bezos dreams of having? But NASA's planning to build houses on the moon inhabited by astronauts. Their, their goal is 2040 and to construct colonies. But there's engineering challenges like you wouldn't believe to do this. But the biology engineering, that's something we really don't have a, a good handle on. Our bodies evolved on a world where there's constant and plentiful and consistent gravity and relatively low background radiation. We had a program earlier this evening talking about building for purpose and constructing, you know, if you have a certain behavior that you want to see, you construct to facilitate rather than to impair that behavior. And we are definitely engineered to live in a gravity field. We're engineered to be protected from radiation. Even with all that atmosphere and uh, an atmosphere and magnetic field protecting us, we still get skin cancer. It's the most common cancer that people get. Uh, space has all kinds of things that make it very inhospitable. Now, what is gra- how does low gravity affect them? Well, we've all heard of motion sickness. This is like motion sickness that just keeps amping, amping, amping up. And eventually, the brain figures it out and turns those off. But it's hard to pee. You can't empty your bladder. It's easy to get bladder infections because the urine doesn't go down. It sort of clings to the walls of the bladder and you can't really shake it out. Also, uh, space travelers don't get the sense that they have to go when they have to go. And... Uh, you can imagine what that's going to be like at low gravity. 
most people are aware that low gravity takes a, bat, a big toll on the bones and muscles, muscles atrophy, the bones lose density, about 2% uh, a month in space. Uh, if you're an old, if you're a senior in the United, in, on Earth, you're going to drop that bone density maybe a half a percent a year, not 2% a month. And by exercising for two or three hours a day, they can limit that bone loss, but they can't stop it. The real problem is the heart, because the heart gets lazy. It shrinks. And and, uh, Scott Kelly, when he came back after a year on the International Space Station, his heart had decreased uh, by nearly a third. And uh, his eyeballs became less spherical. That means that his vision was impaired while he was up there. He couldn't focus. He had to have special special free-fall glasses. Uh, that's going to happen as well. The magnetic field shields us from the most damaging kind of solar and galactic radiation. But the minute that you, ha- you get outside of that magnetic field, you don't have that protection. Of the 24 Apollo astronauts who flew beyond, went beyond the magnetosphere, for no more than a week at a time. Statistically, they were five times more likely to die of cardiovascular disease than astronauts of the same cohort who never left Earth's orbit. Uh, Presumably, the cosmic radiation caused damage to their DNA, their arteries, their veins. I'd say structural damage that led to inflammation in the arteries, which led to deposition of plaque. Uh, now they're thinking about putting a water shield, maybe eight inches thick, around all of the vessels. That's going to be expensive to make, and it's heavy. So maybe they'll have to make it in space. But another thought is to just pull out the CRISPR scissors and improve this, the astronauts' genomes uh, so that they're better able to protect themselves against radiation. We do see, for example, around Chernobyl, uh, now we're, we're, ten, we're like 10 generations of animals. Uh, and what we see is rapid evolution of anti-radiation rec- or, and DNA recovery repair genes are all upregulated. Remember I talked about taking CRISPR to turn on fetal hemoglobin, you just remove the inhibitor. Well, Apparently, a lot of things are being inhibited and can be stimulated, upregulated, duplicated, or otherwise adapted rapidly to respond to changes in the environment. So that's pretty radical, but I actually think it's going to happen. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen by 2050, but certainly in 100 years, I think that the human race is likely going to speciate and specialize even more than evolution has already taken us into body habitus and uh, physiologic and biochemical changes that suit her suit us to the different environment, including possibly uh, the new planet that we're going to find ourselves on in a hundred years or so. So, you know, call it five generations, seven generations to make the kind of changes that might be necessary, but it is in my opinion, no doubt that it will happen. So I want to put out a cautionary tale at the end of this program. 
this is a new type of RNA vaccine that the article in Nature is very enthusiastic about. Uh, And the reason they was in the news feed was because it was... It won its first full approval in Japan, and this is a vaccine against uh, COVID-19. It's not; it's a little different than the standard messenger RNA COVID-19 vaccines, and it's different in a way that while it could make it uh, a pivotal advance, it could also make it substantially more dangerous than any other vaccine that we've ever invented. And my audience knows I am fully vaccinated. I think vaccines are a great idea. I also believe in the law of unintended consequences, biting you on the behind periodically. Do we really need a vaccine that triggers higher levels of virus virus fighting antibodies anyway? I mean, I thought the mRNA vaccines were you know, really good and quite adequate in terms of producing antibodies. And it's not about it's not about antibodies anyway. It's about getting a good T cell immunity, which we don't look at because we don't know how to test for it well. And so it's never been part of the dialogue about vaccine approval, but it really should be because it's the durability of the response, not the spike at the beginning, but how long do you keep a response? So let's talk about these two vaccines. First of all, just to review, the conventional messenger RNA vaccine has RNA inside a lipid ball, and it soaks into the cell, and the lipid ball fuses with the, with the cell wall, and the RNA basically is dr- dumped into the cell. There, it attaches to the ribosomes that are the protein manufacturing machinery, and they make the protein that the RNA codes for, in this case, when we're talking about COVID, the spike protein. All right. So now the self-amplifying RNA vaccine actually also contains a recipe for an enzyme called replicase. This is uh, an enzyme that they stole from a virus that is what the virus uses to cause its DNA to be manufactured inside the the, uh, cell, whatever the target cell is. So by adding replicase, you not only have one copy of the messenger RNA in there being run through the ribosomes to make viral antigens, you you make multiple copies of the RNA that you put in. So you've gotten a little bit of a geometric progression going on. So you make a lot of copies of spike protein. But the problem is in the case, at least one of my problem with using this for COVID is because the thing we chose as the target, the spike protein, is actually a functional thing in our bodies. It actually serves a purpose. It I mean the ACE2 enzyme, which is on the surface of the cells, which is the target, the thing that the spike protein sticks to, was doing something. And so when we give massive amounts of spike protein, uh, we end up with massive inflammation because we've cut the brakes on inflammation. And we're already, I think, kind of missing 
just grazing the level where we're producing a lot of inflammation with uh, our vaccine. I think it is a reasonable thing to do. I think the inflammation damps down because the natural damping mechanism is intact, unless it's not. But it's very difficult to do this perfectly. And by supposedly the Venezuelan equine encephalitis virus, which is the source, encephalitis, that's like deadly brain swelling, by the way, folks. The source of this it has been, they've removed all the key genes from the viral se- sequence that could cause harm. So now we're just putting in the replicase and it's non-infectious and it's safe for humans. I'll buy the non-infectious. But when you try to do something complicated and difficult and then you try to scale it up, uh, mistakes can creep into some of the batches. And the idea that we're going to make more spike protein rather rather than just get the antibody response that we've already established. Millions and millions of people, billions of people, have received M- uh, doses of mRNA vaccine at this point, and we haven't seen a lot of bad stuff. So I don't really feel like I need... I, I, I'm, I'm playing blackjack. I've got 17. I feel like we should just stick here and not take another card because you never know what you might get. And maybe this technology can work really well in other areas, but I just don't want to see us amplifying antibodies in this way. I think that we, but while we're waiting for those antibodies to be made, we've just taken out tons of our brake fluid again, because all of that... A viral part, a viral spike particle that we made and released into our system, is reducing our ability to turn off in inflammation, and we we know how much we need to give to get a good response. More is not better, and this is just one of those situations where I feel like, you know, industry science and and venture capitalism are just marching forward without really thinking very carefully about the potential uh, implications. Time for just a short story, as I always save a a few of these. Oh, well, we did space, so let's talk about vaporized space junk. You may not think of this as a health hazard, but uh, it actually could be. So when satellites and booster rockets fall back into the atmosphere, the, the heat vaporizes much of their matter, and you get a cloud of tiny aerosolized metals but there's a lot more of that than we realize. And uh, these mini- microscopic bits of space junks, these can't be you know, taken out by some, uh, some sci-fi guy with, a, with the equivalent of a dump truck. Uh, these are microscopic, and they may soon accumulate to the point where they alter how our atmosphere reflects or traps heat, Scientific American recently reported. In a new study, scientists sampled the air high up in the stratosphere, and they found alarming amounts of tiny particles of metals used in rockets and satellites, particularly aluminum, copper, and lithium. And uh, these had ended up inside particles of sulfuric acid, which make up the bulk of the particulates in the stratosphere. So the upper atmosphere has always contained uh, sulfuric acid, and it's always contained some aerosolized metals, because that's when a meteorite burns up, that's pretty much what's burning up. But 
Now 10% of the sulfuric acid particles in the stratosphere contain spacecraft-associated metals. And this could sort of 50% or more in the next few decades, especially if we have a space war. We don't know what those particles might do, but they might actually uh, accelerate the formation of sunlight-reflecting clouds. They could even... Uh, ironically enough, they could fix global warming or they could overshoot and throw us into an ice age. So just one more thing that we should have thought through and we better start thinking about pretty darn soon. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at Ask Dr. Don. For now, this is Dr. Don saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.